0: This is the sex and psychology podcast and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. A surprising amount of sexuality research is not very sex positive and this is especially true when you look at research on minority populations. Whether we're talking about racial minorities, sexual and gender minorities, or persons with kinky or unconventional sexual interests, a lot of the research has historically been focused only on the risks, such as sexually transmitted infections, unintended pregnancies, or risky sexual practices. While there's certainly a place for that kind of work, when it becomes the sole or predominant focus, it really inhibits our understanding of diverse people and sexualities. So let's talk about it. In today's show, we're going to focus on Black women's sexuality and explore what sex-positive research on this population can tell us, including how Black women conceptualize sexual pleasure. We're also going to talk about how racialized stereotypes and social expectations can impact sexual behavior, experiences with sexual pain, as well as sexual fantasies. My guest today is Dr. Shamika Thorpe an award-winning sexuality educator whose research focuses on the sexual well-being of Black women using sex-positive and pleasure-centered frameworks. Dr. Thorpe is an assistant professor of health promotion at the University of Kentucky. She has published over 50 peer-reviewed articles, and her work has been featured all over in the media. In 2023, BuzzFeed listed her as one of the top 20 Black sexologists you should follow, and you definitely should. This is going to be a fascinating and really important conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. If you're a fan of this show, then I know you're hungry for sexuality knowledge. But if you're also looking to find a community of like-minded, sex-positive professionals, check out the Sexual Health Alliance. Shaw connects you with world-class experts and an active group of passionate, fun, and welcoming students. Shaw is at the forefront of sexuality education and hosts monthly live events, both online and in-person, with students from all over the world and from all types of backgrounds. They come together to learn, travel, connect, and sometimes form friendships. So, podcast fans, continue advancing your sexuality knowledge, have fun, and meet fantastic people in the process at Sexual Health Alliance. You can find their upcoming events and online certification programs at sexualhealthalliance.com. Hi, Shamika, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about your work. But before we do, let me first ask a question about your professional journey. So, you've been a sex educator and researcher for more than a decade. So, what is it that drew you to this field? Why did you want to become a sexologist?
1: Yeah. Um, what drew me to the field? Actually, what's very surprising is I looked back at some of my undergraduate papers and they were actually about adolescent sexuality. And I was like, oh, wait, I was kind of always interested in this and never knew it. But I actually started out by teaching comprehensive sexuality education in North Carolina uh, to teen girls and to middle school girls. And it was just fun being a part of that nonprofit, doing community health education, Actually, my manager saw something in me and was like, I think you'll be great at this. And I was like, cool, let's do it. And so uh, I went from doing education to doing research, and I'm super passionate about both. So it's been a definitely a journey, but I love every minute of it.
0: You know, I can imagine that teaching teenagers and adolescents about sex is something that only makes you want to do the work even more because, Mm -hmm. you know, I know a lot of folks, for example, who are in medical school, who, as part of their training, have to go and teach sex education to teens or adolescents. And one of the things they find is that, gosh, they know nothing (laughs) about (laughs) sex. They're not getting information at home. They're not getting it from the schools. And we really need to do a lot more in terms of sex education. I'm sure your experience maybe was kind of similar to that.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, back then at that time, like they were on social media, but it wasn't like TikTok and Instagram the way it is now. So they were having more
0: conversations
1: that were just like word of mouth with their peers. So they thought they knew a lot. Uh, (laughs) What they knew wasn't necessarily accurate, but they thought that they knew a lot.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a great way to put it, is that they think they know a lot, but then some of the things they say just make you realize, oh, we need more sex ed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so thank you for the work that you're doing, (laughs) because it is very much needed, especially in this age of social media, where there's a lot of sexuality misinformation that's going around. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about sex research. Now, if you look at the history of sex research, you'll see that it has historically focused on just a few segments of the population. So in particular, in the not-too-distant past, almost every sex study and almost every psychology study more broadly was focused on men, and especially men who were typically young and white and heterosexual. Now, that has started to change in recent years, and we have a growing literature on diverse sexualities, but our knowledge is still lacking. And one example of this would be when it comes to understanding Black women's sexuality, which is a topic that you've explored extensively. And in one of your recent papers, you surveyed the entire literature on this subject and found that most of the research in this area has focused on Black women's sexuality through the lens of STIs and risky sexual behavior. So tell us a bit more about what you found there and also how this kind of unbalanced focus exists when it comes to studying the sexuality of a lot of minority groups
1: yeah. So for us, when we did the content analysis, um, it was led by Dr. Candace Hargons. And so when we did that content analysis, we saw that most of the research was on HIV prevention, STI prevention, teen pregnancy prevention, um, some things around like sexual socialization and intimate partner violence. But we were missing content around pleasure and orgasms and sexual functioning in general, so including desire and arousal. Those things that necessarily exist. And I think part of it has been historically how Black women have been hypersexualized within the US, which dates back to slavery, but also what is fundable for Black communities. And so a lot of the research that is being done with Black communities or research that is being done on Black communities, we see that it's usually things that are deficit based, focused on preventing some type of health disparity. Um, but we forget that people have an entire sex life outside of these health disparities that exist. And so our goal was really to move forward with publishing more things that were sex positive, focusing on sexual functioning, but also to recognize that, you know, these disparities do exist, but there's more to us than just these deficits.
0: Yeah, I think everything you said there is totally spot on, especially the part about you know, what is fundable? And as I've said on this show many times before, it's very hard to get funding for sex-related research, especially in the United States. And so much of the funding is limited to things that are specifically focused on public health. So if it's STI prevention or teen pregnancy prevention, there's a lot more money available to study those things. If you want to study pleasure in general, or if you want to study pleasure in a minority group, like that funding is really hard to come by. And I think, you know, you can see a parallel in a lot of the research that's been out there on gay and bisexual men, where historically so much of it is just focused on HIV prevention and, you know, broader STI risks. And so, you know it seems like to me that race and sexual orientation you know they're often discussed in sex education and sex research as risk factors but race isn't a risk factor you know it's these broader societal and systemic things that disproportionately affect communities of color that are the risk factors right and when we overlook that and start saying things like race is a risk factor Obviously, it comes across as quite judgmental for one thing, but I'm just wondering if you can kind of like speak to the importance of language in sex education and research and why talking about things like race or sexual orientation as risk factors is problematic.
1: Yeah, it's problematic because it doesn't address the systemic issues that we see. So, even when we're talking about hypersexualization and the impact of that, we have to talk about, you know, decades and decades of sexual trauma that has occurred with Black women historically. We have to talk about sexual stereotypes, racism, all those things that impact. Black women's sex lives on a daily basis. And so, you know, when we just say, oh, it's race, it's like, well, no, there's something else that's happening to this population that is making these things occur. It might even be access. So access to healthcare, access to comprehensive sex ed, because we know Black girls are less likely to receive comprehensive sex education compared to white girls, right? So that's also an issue within itself. Um, So we definitely have to be careful about the way we talk about race, but also I think, you know, in public health more recently, there's been articles published in the American Journal of Public Health where they're pushing like pleasure. So it's like, you know, we're pleasure. We love pleasure. And I'm like, do you? Do you really? (laughs) So it's, it's interesting to see, you know, kind of this push that it's trying to occur. And don't get me wrong, people have been doing this work long before me. But I think we've seen an uptick in the number of people that are doing more empirical research and actually collecting data around sexual pleasure for Black women and Black communities in general.
0: Yeah, and you're right when you say that there have been people who have been doing this work for years. You know, I'm reminded of Dr. June Dobbs-Butts, who passed relatively recently, who was really a pioneer in studying Black women's sexuality. I think she was the first Black woman to train at the Masters and Johnson Institute and then took her training and applied it to the Black community and wrote for a lot of Black publications and was really this prominent educator for Black men and women. And so there have been folks like her who have been around, but they've been up against a lot of headwinds. You know, June Dobbs Butts received a lot of criticism for the work that she did, both from within the Black community and outside of that, because it's always been controversial, taboo to study this topic. So there have been folks who have been trying, but, you know, just in general, being a sex researcher is hard work for anybody.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's extremely hard. And I think it depends on where you live, too. So, like, I live in a conservative state right now. So, definitely, it's hard to do with sex research.
0: Yes. You know, and I think, you know, tying our last two questions together, I think when you look at the funding situation here in the U.S. where it seems to focus on the negative side of sex, the STIs, the unintended or unwanted pregnancies, you know, that leads to research focusing primarily on those topics and then that feeds that narrative of things like race as a risk factor and so you know it's all tied together and basically we need some broader change you know in terms of how we go about doing sex research how we fund it to make sure that it's not through that lens of sex is always risky and creating these unhealthy problematic narratives that come out of a lot of that work so let's talk about some of your specific studies now One of your recent papers looked at how Black women define pleasure. So tell us a little bit about that. You know, since there's very little in the way of sex-positive research on Black women, what have you found in terms of how they conceptualize pleasure?
1: Yeah. So that's one of my favorite papers. Um, In that paper, we talked about how Black women define pleasure and there's these foundational components. So there's mental components, emotional components and physical components that make them feel pleasure. So it could be mental that they're focused on their partner, um, feeling like, you know, they're liberated in that moment. Uh, Emotional components of feeling closeness and kind of intimacy. And then also these physical components of how their body actually feels. In the moment. Um, and so we titled this Pleasure Mountain. I always use the analogy of like the price is right game with a little cliffhanger <laughs> where like the, the person is climbing up the side. And so, you know, you're seeing this black woman trying to get their peak pleasure. And what does that mean? And so for that, they define pleasure as a uh, partner interaction. So most of most of their pleasurable experiences were with a partner or they desired it to be with a partner. Also having mind-body awareness with themselves, but also with their partner feeling liberated, which was very interesting how people were saying, like, I want to feel liberated and free. And we see that in other research with Black people who are gender expansive as well. And then the final one was orgasm. So that was one, although it was there, it was not mentioned by as many people as the other three. Um, And so it was really surprising to see you know, just how people define pleasure, but also kind of, you know, destroying the myth that orgasms equal pleasure. And we know that that isn't necessarily true. And pleasure doesn't always equate orgasms. And in this case, it didn't.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a really important point. As we've talked about on this show many times, when you equate pleasure with orgasm, then that can set up this expectancy of, You know, sex as being this goal directed activity where everything is just leading up to the orgasm, and anything that comes before that is just just foreplay, if you will. And so people don't tend to prioritize it or focus on it as much and it becomes about the destination as opposed to the journey. And it's a problematic way of approaching sex because when you think about pleasure more expansively, it just opens up the door for you to go off in different directions, to explore, to experience, to experiment with different things and to discover like just how great sex can be beyond just having an orgasm.
1: Absolutely. And I'm one of the papers that we're working on now with the same group of Black women. Uh, we asked them to define sexual anxiety and we saw, well, we asked them what caused sexual anxiety. And we saw that a lot of women felt pressured to orgasm. And I was like, wow, like that hasn't been mentioned in the literature yet, but there's this pressure to orgasm makes them feel extremely anxious. And so then they're spectating during sex instead of just being in the moment and enjoying it. They can't because they feel like they have to orgasm in order to make their partner happy.
0: Yeah. And since you mentioned the term "spectating," that was a term that came out of Masters and Johnson's work. And for folks in my audience who might not be familiar with what it means, what does it mean to be a spectator during sex?
1: So being a spectator during sex basically means that you're having sexual intercourse, but your mind might be elsewhere. So you may be focused on other things. It could be things related to the household chores, children in the other room, or just anything else that you may be thinking about other than being in the present moment during sexual intercourse.
0: Yeah. So you're being a spectator to your own sexual experience as opposed to being an active participant in it. And as you mentioned, feeling that pressure to orgasm can kind of pull you out of being the actor in that situation and being more of an observer like how do i make this happen or what's wrong with me why am i not orgasming why is this taking so long and so you know any kind of pressure like that can be a negative influence when it comes to experiencing pleasure having an orgasm you know and it ultimately becomes counterproductive you know the more pressure that there is on you to have an orgasm the less likely it is that an orgasm is going to happen right because you kind of get stuck in your head
1: absolutely absolutely
0: now, in another podcast, I heard you on. You discussed how Black men conceptualize pleasure as well. So, I'm curious, do you have data on that, and how is it similar to or different from Black women?
1: Yeah. So, in that paper, it's called. It's a paper called "Good Sex." I think it's like Black people's constructions of good sex, which it sounds so good, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, in that paper, I love that we compared Black men to Black women to Black people who are gender expansive. And so, what we saw is that Black men actually, um, in their top 10 words for good sex, loving was in there for Black men. And that's not something that was present for people that were gender expansive or people that were cisgender women. Um, and so, de- desiring to have a loving connection with a partner as a term of good sex was just so, so warm to us as a research team to be like, wow. And it kind of destroyed some of the narratives that we see around black men. And I guess, you know, them not having emotions or they're not being intimacy during sexual intercourse, but they desire for loving sex. And so that was really important for us to highlight that. They also included things like passionate and reciprocal, but orgasmic, I think was there in their top 10 as well, but loving definitely stood out the
0: most. Yeah, there are a lot of stereotypes about men in general when it comes to sex and emotion and about Black men specifically. And all the literature and research that I've seen on this just doesn't match up with the stereotypes. You know, for men, there is often this strong desire to feel desired and, you know, to be wanted and for there to be mutual pleasure and for there to be some emotion. You know, for men, it's not just about some emotionless, no strings attached casual encounter, right? There's usually some core emotional element for everybody when it comes to sex and how pleasure is experienced.
1: Yeah. So it was super exciting to see that.
0: So you've also looked at the sexual behaviors of Black women in some of your research. And one of the findings that stood out to me was that Black women were more likely to receive than to give oral sex, whereas in white samples, we've often seen the opposite. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about that. And more broadly, what did you learn about the sexual repertoire of Black women?
1: Yeah, I think with that study, we also thought that was a bit shocking. (laughs) Um, I think one of the things that we're seeing in more research, especially with heterosexual Black couples, is that men are actually very eager to provide oral sex to their partners. And so we see that a lot of times in literature, with studies I've done with Black men, they're, you know, they're like, if we're not if we're not doing that, then what's the point? Like, that's not pleasurable to my partner, so I have to make sure I'm providing pleasure. And it's almost like this manly thing to do. <laughs> um, and so... It's, it's interesting to see that shift. I think some of it has to do with like just transitions that have happened historically. So like in the past in hip hop music, they used to talk about like how you should never go down on women and how that was something you shouldn't do. And now it's almost in every song that it's something you should do. So it's just a culture shift in that way. Um, and I think we see with women, it's just always been a stereotype. Right. So if you do that, then what? And so we see with black women they're participating in a variety of behaviors we know as they age and you know with older black women they're tending to do more manual stimulation more kissing and touching and enjoying that with younger people they they tend to have less pleasurable sex um, but as people age they have more pleasurable sex so I think it was people that were in their 40s that were having like the most pleasurable sex which everybody on social media when I posted that that was in their 40s was <laughs> like yes like we're winning <laughs> so kudos to them <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, and it's consistent with what we've seen in the broader literature, which is that, you know, people in their 40s and sometimes even in their 50s are the ones who are reporting having the best sex of their lives or where they're finally having like some transcendental sexual experience. And so it's kind of like, you know, the best is yet to come. You know, yeah. it's it's not necessarily the case that younger people who might have higher libidos and maybe they're having more sex on average in, in some cases, it doesn't necessarily mean they're having the best or most satisfying sex. So I think that's actually positive that like, hey, you know, there's stuff to look forward to later on.
1: Absolutely. I'm excited about that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So since we've been talking about sexual behavior and sexual pleasure, let's talk a little bit about orgasms. So we hear a lot about the orgasm gap or the idea that in male-female sexual encounters that men orgasm at much higher and more consistent rates than women do. So do we have a sense of how the orgasm gap plays out between Black men and Black women? So is the gap still there? Is it bigger? Is it smaller? What do we know?
1: Yeah. So the gap is still there. So in research that I conducted with uh, Dr. Debbie Herbinick and Dr. Ashley Towns, we saw that the gap still exists, especially between Black men and Black women. It does close a bit once we were in that 40 and 50 age range, but it still does exist. And it was interesting to see how it was bigger as as people were younger, which is the same across all literature, but just, you know, being able to confirm that.
0: Yeah, and that makes sense, especially the part about aging and the orgasm gap closing. You know, I've seen some other research out there finding that as men and women get older that Men are giving more oral sex and women are giving somewhat less. And so that might be one of the contributing factors is that there are sometimes changes in sexual behavior patterns that occur with age. There could be a lot of other factors that play into that as well. You know, for example, as women get older, they tend to better understand their own bodies and what works for them and how they experience orgasm. You know, women on average don't experience their first orgasm until somewhat later than men do so you know and then there's also the partner specific learning component so lots of things uh, might play a role there so the orgasm gap is something that we see is present across heterosexual couples at different ages different racial groups it's kind of always there but in certain contexts it's a little smaller than others
1: I also wonder sometimes how safety plays a role in that. So, with communication and safety, so feeling safe enough to talk to that partner about what you want during sexual encounters. And I think with working with college students, sometimes they're having sex with people they don't necessarily feel safe with, and that they could communicate these things without there being some type of backlash. And so I think as you age, you also either get better communication skills, you're having sex with people that hopefully you feel safe with, or sometimes people are in committed relationships, so it may be easier to have these conversations.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, when people are younger, the proportion of sex that they have that is casual tends to be higher compared to when they're a little older. And in casual contexts, you know, I'm thinking about Terry Conley's research here where she looks at how women evaluate men who make offers of casual sex, and they tend to perceive them as not being invested as much in their pleasure. They perceive more potential safety risks or concerns. And so you've got these different factors that are playing a role. It's not just about pleasure or anticipated pleasure, but that feeling of safety is, I think, also key here as well. Now, something else that you've researched is sexual pain in Black women. And you say in your research that Black women may have more expectations on them to forego reporting pain or to ignore it. So tell us a little bit about that. How common is sexual pain in Black women and how do social and racialized expectations and scripts affect how that might be experienced for them?
1: Yeah. So in the pain and pleasure study, we looked at Black women's experiences of sexual pain out of that entire sample. So it was with Southern Black women out of the entire sample, 60% reported feeling sexual pain at some point in their lifetime, some more frequent than others. And so what we saw is for those that did not report sexual pain or communicate their sexual pain to their partners, they often felt this desire to kind of reinforce or reinforce superwoman schema. And so superwoman schema is basically the idea that you're supposed to be strong. You're not supposed to show emotions. You're supposed to be able to deal with things by yourself, use your own resources, be independent and put others before yourself. It's a coping strategy that is used with Black women related to several things in their life. But we know that it has negative health outcomes, including chronic health conditions and heart related conditions. But also it is now impacting people's sex lives. And so for Black women, they felt that they shouldn't have to talk to their partner about their sexual pain or if they talked to their partner about it, they would judge them. They wouldn't necessarily support them. Some of them thought that it would like weird their partner out one person said that oh it's my burden to carry and you know it's, it has nothing to do with him um and so we see that that is continuing to pop up in sexual pain literature. And some of those things still exist for communication with providers as well, where they feel like, you know, providers think that Black people in general have higher pain tolerances. So when they're talking to them about pain, they won't understand anyway and they won't believe them. And so that's the importance of having Black physicians that can honestly believe that these are the things that people are going through and kind of having some type of training for medical providers and medical students to, you know, Dispel these myths that exist about Black people in pain.
0: Yeah. And then there's the whole intersectionality issue on top of that. So you talked about how Black people in general might be stereotyped as having a higher pain threshold. And then you add into that research that we've seen on women talking about pain related complaints to their doctors and not being believed, right? And, you know, that's been something that's been pervasive in. The medical literature and sciences for years and so when you've got the racialized stereotype or expectation on top of the gender stereotype and expectation you know the situation then for black women with something like sexual pain the end result is that it's not treated as seriously or in the way that it should be treated maybe for other populations
1: Absolutely. And I mean, with this research, it was done in the South, too. So we also have to think about like historically with medical experimentation on black bodies in the South and what that means and how that plays a role and what people perceive as far as the treatment that they will receive, but also what they really are, like the treatment they really are receiving as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Something else I wanted to ask you about, and this stems from some of my own research. So I do a lot of work on sexual fantasies. And in my research, I find that there are some differences in fantasies when you look at Black men and women compared to white men and women, or when you make comparisons to other racial and ethnic groups. So some of the differences that I see are that Black men and women are actually less likely to report talking about their sexual fantasies with their partners, less likely to report having acted on those fantasies. And they also report some differences in the types of things that they fantasize about. So, for example, Black men and women, compared to whites, report fewer fantasies about non-monogamy and about taboo activities in general. And one of my hunches or suspicions as to why we see some of these racial and ethnic differences is that, at least in my sample, I find that for Black men and women, the rates of having a religious affiliation are much higher compared to white participants. And so it just sort of made me wonder, about what your thoughts are on when we see differences in sexual behaviors across different racial and ethnic groups in terms of what's driving that and what's the role of religion and other societal factors in terms of maybe explaining some of those differences.
1: Yeah, I think religion definitely plays a role when it causes you know shame and guilt among you know black people in the behaviors that they're engaging in or desire to engage in or even related to sexual orientation and sexual identity. It could play a role in that. As soon as you said the differences about like talking about their desires and things like that, I think that's more related to judgment and and stereotypes. And so if as a black woman, if I'm in a relationship and I tell someone, Hey, this is what, these are all my fantasies, everything I dreamt of. One, I have to know that you're a safe person for me to tell all these things to, but two. I think there's also a fear that there's like this judgment on the other side of that of, oh, are they going to think I'm promiscuous? Or I've heard Black women be like, oh, I can't tell them that. Like, they're going to think I'm a hoe because I want to do this. And so it's feeling like you don't have that freedom to just be expansive in that way and dream and actually do all the things that you want to do. And so I think part of that is just rooted in the stereotypes that exist and rooted in gender racism where we don't necessarily have the space or feel like we have the space to just talk about our desires freely and openly. You know, that goes for Black men as well, where they probably feel like, you know, Black women might judge them because they want to do all these things. I wish there was more spaces for us to just have those open and, and free conversations. And sometimes we do have those spaces and I'm grateful for them. Um, but, you know, obviously there just needs to be more, more room for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think everything we've been talking about here highlights the need for why we need more research on diverse sexualities, how we need to have more open communication, and how we need to have a sex-positive lens when we're studying minority populations and we're not just looking at things through the lens of STIs, HIV prevention, and so forth. So on that note, I want to ask... What can we do? I know this is a big question. (laughs) What can we do to promote better, more equitable sex education and sex research? Do you have any suggestions for practical steps that we can take there?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I want to be like more funding. So whoever the funders (laughs) are, more sex positive funding. I think that's number one. I think number two, um, being mindful of how you're writing about people of color. So that's one thing that I've seen a lot with white researchers is sometimes they talk about people of color in ways that if the participants were actually reading it, they would not agree with the way that they were talking about them. And so I think being mindful of what you're saying, making sure you're using asset-based approaches and strength-based approaches to your writing. I think also having people on research teams that look like the communities you're serving and doing research with to make sure you're not doing research on people, but actually with them. And I think another thing is to like, think outside the box. So let's forget the funders for a second. But if you had a dream, the biggest dream, you know, what research study would you do and why? I think the why is the most important part. So why are you interested in exploring these things? And you know, also thinking about any harms that could be done to the community if you do explore that.
0: Yeah, I think that's all great advice and I appreciate you sharing that. I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation in the next episode and talking all about the keys to a pleasure-filled life. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Shamika. It was truly a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work?
1: Yes, you can visit my website, which is drshamika.com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook as Dr. Shamika.
0: Well, thanks again for being here. And I will be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at SexandPsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash psychology Thanks again for listening. Until next time.